After a 70-year reign, the UK and the world bid farewell to Queen Elizabeth II. What is her lasting legacy? And what will become of the British monarchy under King Charles III? Author and historian Joseph Pierce and the National Catholic Reporters Edward Penton share their thoughts. Crisis pregnancy centers are pushing back against government sanctions in Massachusetts. We'll bring you the latest. And the man who advanced the cause of St. Mother Teresa of Calcutta, Jim Toohey, joins us to talk about her life and legacy in his very personal new book, To Love and Be Loved. Finally, Advent and Christmas are right around the corner, and the Benedictine monks of Clear Creek Abbey have recorded a beautiful new CD of sacred chant. We'll give you a preview. The World Over begins right now. A warm welcome to all of you joining us in the United States and the world over. We have an important show for you tonight. If you'd like to comment, send me a tweet. I'm at Raymond Arroyo. Lots to cover this evening. Let's get started. It is truly the end of an era. On Thursday, September 8th, British monarch Queen Elizabeth II passed away after an unprecedented 70-year reign. Elizabeth was 96. She ascended to the throne at the age of 25 after the death of her father, King George VI. Just two days before her passing, she was still performing her royal duties when she welcomed the new British prime minister at her home at Balmoral. The world's attention has been captivated by the pageantry and the tradition of the passing of one monarch and the ascendancy of King Charles III. Here to share their thoughts on all of this, historian and author of Faith of Our Fathers, A History of True England, Joseph Pierce, and fellow Englishman and the National Catholic Register's Vatican correspondent, Edward Penton. Thank you both for being here. Joseph, I'll begin with you. What was your reaction when you heard that Queen Elizabeth had died? Well, I think that one of great sadness, because it, it is literally the end of an era. None of us remember when she wasn't queen, and nobody remembers a, a, a kingdom that wasn't uh, had a king. Uh, so, you know, in that sense, it was... Um, it was, it, was, it was something which was very sad for, I think, every, every Englishman and every, every Briton um, to, to see the passing of, of uh, such a long-lived and gracious queen. Mm -hmm. Edward, uh, I know you were fond of the queen, and we'll talk in a bit about the, the tribute you wrote to her. Yes, yes. No, like, like Joseph, it came uh, as a shock. As a Obviously, we all knew it was going to come fairly soon. He was 96, but... Um, but in the end, it sort of um, happened really rather rapidly. But yes, I mean, she, she'll be much missed. She was a great rock for the nation. She was a, such a stable force, really, um, and really comes from her faith, I believe, but also the, the, the institution itself. Um, so, yes, yeah. it, was a, it was a very sad day for us all, really. I want to pick up on that. Throughout her life, the Queen was progressively more open about her faith, especially in those Christmas addresses, even as the world in the UK became more secular. This is from her last Christmas address in 2021. Watch. That in the birth of a child, there is a new dawn with endless potential. 
It is this simplicity of the Christmas story that makes it so universally appealing. Simple happenings that form the starting point of the life of Jesus, a man whose teachings have been handed down from generation to generation and have been the bedrock of my faith. Now, now Joseph, uh, Queen Elizabeth II was known as the defender of the faith, and she held that title Supreme Governor of the Church of England. What does that title really mean today, and what does the role entail? Well, the, the, there's a, 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 a historical anomaly, of course, because that title was originally uh, given to King Henry VIII um, by the Pope for King Henry VIII's uh, uh, defense of Catholic orthodoxy against the ideas of, of, of Martin Luther. And then, of course, Henry VIII, as we know, broke with the church, uh, destroyed the monasteries and converts, became a tyrant who had his own wives executed. So there's a, there's, there's, a, there's a deep irony. But I think with the Queen, there's, there's um, a, a real sense that she was defending the faith one of the most uh, one, of, one, of the, one of the less uh, enlightened comments uh, by Charles, uh, now King Charles III, many years ago, was he said he didn't want to be known as the defender of the faith. Yes, uh, which sounded I'm going to get to that. But I just just defender of faith, which is largely meaningless. Yeah. So I hope that he's going to follow in Queen Elizabeth II's footsteps by being a defender of the faith, as in the Christian faith. And you're completely correct that as as she got older, she became more orthodox, uh, what you might call higher church, uh, more Catholic, um, with you know very very good positive things said about several of the popes and about Mother Teresa. So uh, a very very good person and a good Christian. And quite frankly, having having written a history of Catholic England, probably the most virtuous monarch England's had since since the reign of uh, Saint Edward the Confessor a thousand years ago. Wow, there's an endorsement I didn't expect. Interesting. Uh, Edward, you wrote a tribute uh, piece to Her Majesty, and you shared some of your own family history. Your great-grandfather was the Garter Principal King of Arms, responsible for the sovereign, uh, for ceremonial and herald heraldry duties. Uh, it was your ancestor who proclaimed both Edward VIII as well as George VI King. And you're right that he also had a hand in Elizabeth's coronation when she showed er, very early on a selfless streak and a consideration for others. What did she do? Yes, well, during her coronation, uh, my great grandfather, Sir Gerald Wollaston, was actually helping the coronation. He, he'd retired by that time in 1952, 53. Um, but he was called on because of his experience to help the Duke of Norfolk, who is the traditionally always organized the coronation, who's Catholic, actually, because it is a very Catholic uh, ceremony. And so Sir Gerald uh, was helping him, uh, but it happened to be the day of his birthday, which was June the 2nd, 1953. And uh, the Queen, despite all of the things she had to remember, she remembered to wish him a happy birthday. So it was a nice, a nice story that showed very much uh, her consideration for others and her selflessness, which, which we saw throughout her reign. Hmm. Joseph, where did the Queen's faith originate? Was it the Queen's Queen Mother? I know she was a churchgoer. I mean, it's not the case that every monarch, as you alluded to earlier, uh, who is the head of the Church of England, is necessarily a committed and practicing Christian. Do you think that she saw her role as Queen as part of a vocation, almost a religious vocation? Yes, I do. And I think it's very important because you're quite correct that there have been kings 
of England uh, who have been de facto uh, agnostics, even as they are de jure defenders of the faith. And that wasn't the case mm. with, with Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. She was a devout Christian. And one thing I liked about it, I found rather interesting, is she was very keen on uh, accentuating the fact that she was descended from the Stuarts. Um, and in other words, sort of distancing herself somewhat from the Tudors. Uh, and the fact that, that Charles uh, this week was seen wearing the Charles Edward Stuart tartan. And of course, you know, that, that the, the, the Jacobite uprising of the 18th century was were the efforts to restore the deposed Catholic King James II, the last Stuart King of England. So it's interesting, even historically, she seems to sympathize, shall we say, with the with the Catholic side of things. Hmm. Edward, Queen Elizabeth met with five popes in her lifetime. Uh, Pius XII, John XXIII, John Paul II three times, uh, Benedict, and then Pope Francis. What influence do you think they had, if any, on her faith, especially John Paul II, whom she met so many times? Well, I think there was a great um, ident identification with the, with the values that they held, that she also held. I mean, she was... She had, as, as Joseph was saying, great Christian uh, values and, and a deep faith. Um, obviously, it was the Protestant faith, it was the Anglican faith. But at the same time, um, I'm sure she saw a lot of commonality with, with the popes of the past. And, 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 and I think that was what um, made her visit the, 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 the Vatican so often. I think she, she, she had a great sort of, um, she could, as I say, she could identify with them and, and their values. And... Uh, and I, she was very warm also with the Catholic Church in, the, in England, too. I mean, she used to call Cardinal Basil Hume, for instance, her cardinal. She was very fond of him and, and, and of all the cardinals as well. Cardinal Cormac Murphy O'Connor, she liked, she liked his, uh, his sense of humor, I believe, and, and, and others. And so I think um, she, she was very fond of, of the Catholic Church in general, I believe, and, and the Pope especially. Mm. Well, I, I also imagine, Joseph, she felt a kinship with the popes in the sense that you take on this enormous responsibility and weight of office. Uh, I had a friend who was part of the royal household uh, at one point and was present when uh, apparently she learned of Pope Benedict's abdication. And she said, no, no, it cannot be. Um, your reaction to that and, and this idea of duty uh, and that you can't give up the office. Well, the first thing I would say is that her her sentiments echoed mine exactly and precisely. And I hadn't heard that before. Um, yeah, I think there's, there was a great reconciliation. I do believe that she saw uh, um, a connection. But, you know, the popes are defenders of the faith, and she is a defender of the faith. And of course, there is a difference between. Anglicanism and Catholicism, and, and she would not want to minimize that or, or to explain it away. But the point is, she was, I think, you know, moving towards a more orthodox understanding of things. And I think that is clear, as you say, that if you if you actually look at the progress of her Christmas addresses to the nation and the Commonwealth over the years, then the older she got, the more Catholic those addresses and the more overtly Christian those addresses became. So I think there was a great reconciliation between the British monarchy and the, and the papacy, uh, which, is, which is due almost entirely to her own role. Mm. Edward, you write in your piece that the Queen passed legislation that was contrary to natural law. Uh, and you point to legalized abortion, same-sex marriage. Now, she gave royal assent to each of these, a formality required for legislation, all legislation. Now, given her faith, 
she certainly had the ability to oppose those items, but she and she could have withheld her assent. But what would that have meant? What would the reaction have been, do you think, if she had withheld her assent? Yes. Well, I think it would have probably led the country into a sort of constitutional crisis. And I think that's that's probably why she didn't do it. I think also um, uh, constitutional lawyers would say that if she did withdraw her, her assent, she'd be essentially breaking the law. And so I think she she wanted to be um, faithful to her coronation oath. But but also the oath, you know, asked that um, she she uphold the teachings of the, 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 the gospel um, and the laws of God. Uh, to her utmost, that was that was what she was uh, she swore to do. But I think it was it was it's difficult in the in the way that the constitution is drawn up because the queen um, is sort of subservient to Parliament, really. Um, and so, yeah. as I said in my piece, she she had to sort of put the democratic will of the of the country before uh, natural law. So I think she was very limited, of course, by what she could do. Um, but I think it was it it was a shame because I think there were things which. I think obviously she didn't agree with, but he was forced, uh, really, because of the constitutional role, to give royal assent, which is, as, as you say, it's yeah. a formality, and it, it doesn't really carry um, uh, the sort of authoritative weight that, uh, that perhaps a president well, might have. Well, we're going to get to this in a moment, but though she is the figurehead of the Church of England, she really, you know, she doesn't she doesn't run the show either in the church or in in the uh, the parliament or the country. So it, it is a ceremonial post, or it's been uh, relegated to that, in certainly in, in the modern age. Now, just last month, the Queen wrote to the Anglican bishops as they were getting ready to meet in London. And she wrote uh, this, throughout my life, the message and teachings of Christ have been my guide, and in them I find hope. It is my heartfelt prayer that you will continue to be sustained by your faith in times of trial and encouraged by hope at times of despair. Now, that's kind of a general, um, you know, sentiment. But Queen Elizabeth reigned for 70 years. And in that time, the world, especially the Western world, Joseph, have become more secular. What was her influence as a Christian leader in the UK during that period and now? Well, the first thing is, you know, that she was on the, on, on the throne, Queen of England for 70 years, and the gossip columnists in this age of, you know, where the, the ubiquitous power of the press to pry into everybody's private life, the gossip columnists don't have a single column inch on her. And that in itself, I think, uh, speaks volumes. It speaks for her mm. virtue. It speaks for the fact that she laid down her life for her people. No greater love is anyone than, than, than to lay down your life for your friends, says our Lord. And she did that in, mm. to, 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 an, to an exceptional and exemplary degree. And in that, she commands and demands the respect of everybody, irrespective of where you stand on on the monarchy, whether you're a monarchist or a Republican, as a person and as someone who devoted herself to her responsibilities to the nation. She is a, a role model that, sadly, that I don't think any politician could claim to come anywhere near during the same period. Mm. I agree. Uh, in, in his first address to the nation last Friday, King Charles had this to say about the monarchy's religious responsibility. Listen, I want to get into this. The role and the duties of monarchy also remain, as does the sovereign's particular relationship and responsibility towards the Church of England, the church in which my own faith is so deeply rooted. In that faith and the values it inspires, I have been brought up to cherish a sense of duty to others and to hold in the greatest respect 
the precious traditions, freedoms, and responsibilities of our unique history and our system of parliamentary government. Edward, he immediately placed faith into the context of the more secular values and duties. What do you make of this? Well, I think it, it points to the fact that the, the monarchy is very much um, seen. I mean, it is really a sacred institution. And it, it goes back, um, even though, you know, before the Church of England, it goes back, of course, to mm -hmm. when England was Catholic. And, and I think it's retained that sort of spiritual element, uh, sort of spiritual aspect of the country. And that's why... I believe it's still held in so much regard. It was doubly held in so much regard, I think, because the Queen was such uh, a faithful servant and she was devoted to her faith and to God and combined with the sacredness of the office, I think, is what made made it so special. Um, and I think that Charles sees that and I think that's why he's, he's reflected on this and, and has said those words, because um, it really does show this, this deep, these deep roots in, in faith that are linked with his office. And um, as I say, it goes back very much to the church. And the yeah. coronation, it, interestingly, shows that. It shows very much the Catholic roots of, of this institution. Yes, which we'll watch in the days ahead. Um, but, but Edward, before I, I move on here to, to Joseph, um, Charles was raised principally by his grandmother, who was the queen mom, was a churchgoer. Um, what becomes of this connection to the Church of England under Charles, or does it matter at this point? Well, I think he'll he'll do as his mother did, and and you know the, the carry out his role as supreme governor of the Church of England in the same way. Uh, I don't think it changes much. I think his, as Joseph said earlier, I think his faith has developed since those days when he wanted to be defender of faith. So I think he will take that role seriously, um, and probably fulfil it exactly as the Queen did. I, I don't think that would change. Yeah. I, I will play that bite for you. And, Joseph, you mentioned this earlier. There's that 1994 interview where Charles was asked uh, about this particularly, and he commented on the king's role as the defender of faith. Watch. I personally, you see, would much rather see it as defender of faith, not the faith, because it means just one particular interpretation of the faith which I think is sometimes something that causes a great deal of problem. It has done for hundreds of years. People have fought each other to the death over these things. It seems to me a peculiar waste of people's energy when we're all actually aiming for the same ultimate goal, I think. Your take on that, Joseph. What do you think that means? What does it tell us about the way he might rule uh, his, his uh, kingdom? Well, we have to hope that he's uh, grown up and matured a bit uh, since those uh, words were, were uttered, because, you know, he couldn't, at the end of it, explain, if, if you asked him directly, what is the goal? Because is he talking about which gods he's talking about, even? Or in the, is he mm -hmm. talking about any gods? Is, if, faith in what? It's, it's, it's so nebulous. It's so um, um, uh, relativistic. And it's that sort of modernism, theologically, which has led to the collapse of uh, the number of people actually going to Anglican church. Uh, you know, G.K. Chesterton famously said, we don't want a church that will move with the world. We want a church that will move the world. And it's that uh, courage of the conviction of the faith 
which brings people to church and brings people back to church. The abandonment of the faith for some sort of nebulous faith in any nothing in particular uh, is only going to mm. contribute to the continu continued decline of, 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 uh, of Anglicanism in the UK. Mm. Gentlemen, watching the Queen lying in state, the funeral at Westminster Abbey, the liturgical ritual of this, and as you alluded to, the, uh, the upcoming coronation, I, I want to give each of you a chance at this. Edward, what do you think is the impact in this modern age, in this modern world, when the whole world really is focused on these, what, what are essentially liturgical rituals? Yes, I think it's interesting. I mean, the reaction so far, I think people have, have been very struck by by these these rituals and the pageantry of, and the tradition that we see. Um, and I think it points them to something bigger than them and bigger than the institution itself, even. I think it points them to the, to the sacred. So in a sense, you've got these flashes of, of, of sacredness coming into a very secular world. And and I think that's, that's, that's striking a lot of people. And I think they're realizing the importance mm -hmm. of of ritual and 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 sacredness, and I think this yeah. this whole this whole situation I think is is proving that and and reminding people. Yeah, and the, the solemnity and the history of it. And uh, Joseph, when I watched, uh, you know, the the procession into Westminster Hall, and you realize this thousand, uh, you know, year old structure, and where Thomas More was sentenced, uh, so much happened there. The weight of that. These events, it seems to me, are charged. They are charged with a spiritual significance and a Catholic echo that, frankly, used to be the 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 purview of papal events that have lost some of that um, charge, if you will, and global attention. Yes, I, th I think one of the important things, obviously, in an age that is wallowing in the gutter, shall we say, that has uh, embraced meaninglessness, uh, moral anarchy mm. and, and political and philosophical relativism, uh, that seeing uh, something which is as edifying, something which is rooted in history, something with roots and with a past is, is, is going to... Uh, hold up and be seen to be something which edifies. It's an edifice. Edifices edify. And I think in an age in which um, we see just iconoclasm with the, the, the sacred being pulled down, I think there will be a hunger for the good, the true, and the beautiful. And I do think in the rituals surrounding uh, the monarchy, surrounding the funeral, surrounding the coronation when it happens, will we'll, we'll enable people to see there is a transcendent splendor uh, in that which is rooted uh, in the collective human experience, which is lost in the anarchy of the times in which we find ourselves. Joseph Pierce, Edward Penton, thank you both for being here, for your insights, thoughts, perspective, and, of course, your great writings. Thank you both. Thank you. Crisis pregnancy centers all over the country have been in the crosshairs of pro-abortion activists since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. In fact, these pro-life centers were targeted before the official opinion came down when the draft was released. These centers have faced protest and vandalism, even threats of violence against employees. Now a coalition of faith-based crisis pregnancy centers has formed in Massachusetts to challenge that state's attorney general, Mara Healy, to protect these centers. For more, I'm joined by executive director of Your Options Medical, Teresa Larkin, and attorney and senior counsel at First Freedom Institute, 
Jeremy Dice. Thank you both for being here. Jeremy, I, I want to start with your letter to Attorney General Healy on behalf of the Massachusetts Family Institute, who are backing these faith-based uh, pregnancy centers. In it, you write, each of our clients are concerned by your office's recent actions against pregnancy resource centers, along with its refusal to enforce the law to protect these centers from the wave of criminal actions taken against them. We ask that you remove the consumer advisory you issued in July of 2022. Further, we ask that you make clear what actions you are taking or will take to protect the PRCs. Now, Jeremy, first off, tell viewers what this consumer advisory issued by the AG is and why you want it rescinded. Well, it's an invitation and a license. It's an invitation, first and foremost, for those who disagree with these pro-life reproductive health facilities to file a frivolous complaint against them with the attorney general of Massachusetts and for her then to, to go and seek legal sanctions against them after an investigation that may or may not even be warranted. Secondly, it's a license to engage in violence and direct efforts against these pro-life faith-based reproductive health facilities. And we've seen that very thing happen in just the last couple of weeks. In fact, the same day that that consumer advisory was, was issued by the attorney general of Massachusetts, uh, several of our clients received vandalism, uh, broken windows, spray paint, uh, blood-looking mm. uh, blood paint splattered against the walls of their facilities, uh, the, the, the ground around the Statue of the Virgin Mary vandalized with words like, if abortion is not safe, then neither are you. These types of threats and intimidation are the things that the Attorney General of, of Massachusetts is supposed to protect these reproductive health facilities from. And instead, mm. she's turned her legal fire against them. And we're just simply wondering, what are you going to do about that? Are you sending the same letter yeah. to Jane's Revenge that you've sent to these reproductive health facilities or not? Well, why do you think the state of Massachusetts is so unwilling to take action against what's clearly vandalism, destruction of property, uh, threats against employees? Have they taken any action at all? As far as we know, there's no similar letter. There's a letter that's been given to the uh, re reproductive health facilities that we represent. There's been this consumer advisory issued against them that is basically saying that these are a pariah and giving license to vandals and anarchists to abuse them and intimidate them and okay, harass them. Okay, but wait, them. Jeremy, Jeremy, is there no investigation underway at all against the, the perpetrators of this violence? I think there have been cursory investigations by local police and by the FBI, but as far as we know, the attorney general herself has done nothing at all as the chief law mm. enforcement officer of the state of Massachusetts. Mm. And I would just like to hear from her as to whether or not she sent the same letter to Jane's Revenge and other groups like that that have otherwise taken the opportunity to, to break the law with vandalism and other threats of intimidation that violate not only state civil rights laws, but also federal laws as well. Right. Teresa, you are executive director of Your Options Medical, one of the centers who signed on mm -hmm. to this letter. Now, your center has been in operation since 1998. Have you suffered any vandalism or threats of violence since Roe was overturned? Yes, we have. We've been uh, victimized and vandalized with the Jane's Revenge. Um, if abortions aren't safe, then neither are you. Uh, we've had protests in front of our building, putting up signs, fake clinic, uh, you need to close now, uh, things like that. Mm. Uh, Teresa, share with the audience the services that your center provide and why this is so 
controversial, particularly when abortions are still widely available in your state. I mean, I, I, yes. I don't really understand why they're targeting you when they can. It's not like abortion is outlawed in Massachusetts. Exactly. So our center is one of the uh, is a medical clinic. We are licensed by the Department of Public Health to provide free pregnancy testing and ultrasounds um, and support services. So in addition to the free medical services that we provide, we also do ongoing support, uh, give our ladies resources, our moms. We provide all sorts of ongoing referrals for them if they're looking for help beyond uh, in order to you know successfully parent or release for adoption. So um, we really don't understand why we would be a target um, for these attacks. Hmm. Jeremy, well over 60 pregnancy resource centers across the country have been vandalized. Some were even firebombed since May. Hmm. Um, you mentioned Jane's Revenge. They've claimed responsibility for some of these attacks. You're arguing that the AG's advisory and their inaction is defending these centers, and that's a, it's a clear violation of the U.S. Constitution. As the chief law enforcement officer of the state, doesn't Healy, the attorney general, have a duty to protect the citizens of Massachusetts, no matter their political or religious beliefs? How is this all Absolutely. just getting away with this? Yeah, you know, it's a great question for Attorney General Healy to answer, and the voters should be reminding her of her obligations to all citizens of the, of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. All Bay Staters deserve the protections of the laws, not just those with whom she politically agrees. What's worse than just simply the lack of defense that she has offered these pro-life, pro faith-based reproductive health facilities is the fact that she's actually given sanction. She's licensed the violence that has ensued after her letters, after her consumer advisory opinions that have come out here. Uh, and so it's actually worse than not giving a defense. Uh, it, it's, it's the fact that she's encouraging others by her inaction to engage in mm -hmm. politically motivated attacks against these reproductive health facilities. And I got to add real quick that those types of threats and intimidations, those acts of violence against these pro-life reproductive health facilities, that's a violation of state and federal law. It doesn't take a genius to have to argue this. It's simply vandalism that you can prosecute. And she ought to be prosecuting that at a bare minimum. But in terms of civil rights, she, as anybody, more than anybody, as a civil rights attorney herself in private practice, should know that you cannot intimidate or block access to a reproductive health facility just because you disagree with the ideology, the faith-based ideology that motivates this organization. Teresa, critics of pregnancy resource, pregnancy resource centers, rather, say centers like yours mislead women and try to talk them out of abortions that they really want. What would you say to those critics? Well, we tell them we can't really talk anyone out of doing anything. We don't have that kind of power. What we do offer is information. We strongly feel that uh, informed consent is one of the most basic elements of just universal health care in general. So for women to be making a major decision about a pregnancy without all the information or the facts is really um, is just almost unconscionable, unconscionable. Uh, before I let you go, Jeremy, any response from the Attorney General of Massachusetts's office? Not yet, but we certainly hope that that's going to come very soon. I mean, as of this past Sunday evening, one of our clients, thankfully, they had hired 24-hour security for their facility. They uh, thwarted yet another attack against them. Someone was going to throw a brick through their window again. Uh, and so the time is absolutely out of the essence here right now. People are left feeling unsafe. Clients are not coming to these facilities as they have every right to be able to do. 
Uh, and instead of protecting these reproductive health facilities, she's placed a target upon them. And we hope she changes that very, very soon. Is there a legal redress here? Could you sue the attorney general? Well, it depends on what actions she takes or does not take. There certainly are things that we are looking at and advising. I would encourage folks to go to firstliberty.org right now and review the letter that we sent to Attorney General Healy uh, earlier this week. Jeremy Dice, Teresa Larkin, thank you both for being here. Thank Thanks you. Thanks for having us. We are a little under a month away from the release of my new picture book, The Wives Men Who Found Christmas. I am delighted to premiere tonight the book trailer. Watch, or perhaps in this case, gaze. The wise men are three of the most beloved characters of Christmas. But what if they were neither kings nor from the Far East? Now in a thrilling new adventure for the whole family, The Wise Men Who Found Christmas, New York Times best-selling author Raymond Arroyo reveals the true hidden story of the mysterious Magi who spied a spectacular star in the sky and undertook a dangerous journey to follow the light, go to the king, and race into the middle of the greatest story ever told. Based on new historical evidence, the wise men who found Christmas captures the true wise men and reminds us that chasing truth is often the most exciting adventure of all. Sure to become part of your family's holiday tradition, The Wise Men Who Found Christmas is available for pre-order now at bookstores everywhere. The Wise Men Who Found Christmas goes on sale October 11th. It is a spectacular read for the whole family. I hope you'll come see me on tour. I'm going to be in Nashville, The Villages, Mesa, Arizona, New Orleans, the Reagan Library. Go to RaymondArroyo.com for all the details. And look, it, there's a link there also to pre-order a signed edition from Premier Editions. And, of course, the book is available from the EWTN catalog and wherever books are sold. She ministered to the poorest of the poor in India, a Nobel Peace Prize winner and an icon of mercy and sanctity beloved around the world. Mother Teresa passed in 1997 and was made a saint in 2016. My next guest not only knows her story better than most, but he was a close associate and a member of the Missionaries of Charity. For 17 years, he compiled material on Mother's life and worked to advance her cause for sainthood. He's also author of the new book, To Love and Be Loved, a personal portrait of Mother Teresa, his first-hand account of Mother Teresa's final years. Please welcome back to the program, Jim Tui. Jim, thanks for being here. Great to be with you, Raymond. The new book uh, really is much more personal. Uh, tell us a little about it and why you wrote it now. Well, uh, I felt like the world would appreciate the woman behind the saint. In the last 12 years of her life, when I knew her, I, w I observed the fullness of her humanity at work in the service of the kingdom. She loved God, and I think in some ways that love of God fueled her love of people in ways we couldn't imagine. She was loving in uh, her relationships with her sisters, but very human. You know, sometimes we Catholics turn our saints into plastic statues. And Mother Teresa was no plastic statue. She was uh, vibrant. She loved, she loved chocolate. 
She could get mad. She mm -hmm. was impatient and stubborn. I know your close friendship with Mother Angelica. What made these women so special was their humanness and how they placed that humanness in service of Christ. Yeah. No, no, I agree. Uh, as you write in the book, uh, and I, I love this line, I had pulled it, uh, the real person who had friends and liked chocolate and told jokes and occasionally got angry, that's who you wanted to bring to the world. Seeing her humanity with all the sweetness and frailty that entails makes her life and works all the more remarkable. And, and really, Jim, this is what I loved so much about the book. It does make her very relatable. And, and I agree with you. I think when you, when you create plaster saints of these people, you do lose their relatability, and, and that gets uh, lost in the shuffle. So this book goes a long way, I think, to restore the human side of Mother Teresa beyond the, the, the images and the, the saint that we've seen all over the world uh, personified in so many ways. Oh, I think you're right. And I, and I think that the stories in the book, these have never been published, are from the sisters that live with her, that knew her from the beginning. The account of her death, her last days, are from seven sisters that were with her when she died. And, and it's really a portrait of how she aged with dignity, how she made sure mm -hmm. that she had her pain managed, she was surrounded by people who loved her, and how she loved one another as Christ loved her. I mean, she received love, she gave love. And that's one of the beautiful things of the book, I think, is that it gives uh, a bunch of stories that aren't out there that give, I think, a more mm -hmm. focused view of her and her life. There's another passage I have to share. Um, you write, one of the things I learned was that Mother Teresa was a born entrepreneur, an aspect of her genius that is usually overlooked. She ran a multinational empire of women doing the most miserable work on the planet for no salary, no benefits, and with no elaborate training. Mother Teresa attributed her business success to divine providence, and in light of the linguistic, cultural, and religious obstacles she overcame, it's hard to argue. She was clearly created for this purpose. Jim, I love that description of it. Also, of course, reminded me a little bit of Mother Angelica. Uh, you observed that Mother Teresa's work for years, um, you know, really the heart of it was divine providence that she relied upon. And you were her attorney, you're a businessman as well. How did that kind of blind faith in God affect how she lived her life and the business side of the ministry she undertook? Well, that's one of the things the book talks about are her worldly affairs, because I had a responsibility to represent her on a number of cases where people were trying to use her name to raise money. She prohibited fundraising. I mean, think about that. She, she said that she mm. preferred the insecurity of divine providence. And that reliance on divine providence directed this worldwide expansion. I mean, think of it, a woman that had no more formal education than high school that ended up being, by the time of her death, in 120 countries, navigating all those culture and language barriers and all the politics of it. It just seemed like the Lord anointed her, but that she had a set of skills that could mobilize people to follow her to these dark holes of the poor, as she described them, and also she had a group of volunteers that were willing to help her, Sandy McMurtry, Jan Petrie, Michael Colopy, the list goes on and on, uh, families mm -hmm. and individuals that were behind her helping her work. And as a result, uh, by the time she died, she had nearly 4,000 sisters and 700 uh, missions throughout the world. And really remarkable how it all started with that first little person she picked up in December 1948. 
No, it is remarkable. And, uh, and again, I, as I read the book and that focus on divine providence and, as you said, the prohibition on fundraising, Mother Angelica had the exact same approach. She was, you know, a total child of divine providence. Whatever God permitted, she, she followed. And for years, there was no budgets at EWTN, nothing. <laughs> she, whatever came in, she used. And then there were many times where, you know, they didn't have the money to do certain things, papal events and other things. And she just signed the contracts and blindly went forward because she felt she was called to do it. And that spirit is the same. I don't, Jim, did you know that Mother Angelica and Mother Teresa shared a flight to Rome on one occasion? No, I didn't know did, that. Did you ever hear about that? Yeah, they did. And it was a, uh, Mother Angelica told me the story. And oddly enough, they had a, they exchanged, uh, you know, compliments for each other's work. Uh, the, the stewardess sat them side by side. Uh, they said, well, well, you know, I'm a great uh, uh, supporter of your work. I'm in awe of you. And then they exchanged pleasantries. Then they both turned away and napped until they got to Rome. So <laughs> it wasn't much of a, you know, the, these, these type A foundresses, uh, Jim, you know, they, they were kind of on their own separate missions at times. Tell me, for, for years, you were mother's personal attorney. Uh, you traveled with her many times, particularly when you worked full time for two years as a, as a volunteer. What was the most memorable or telling moment or revealing moment with her in your experience? Well, she was a mother. And so the way that she loved people as a mother loves people. I mean, I, my favorite memory is one day when we were working like six straight hours. It was lunchtime and I was going to go run an errand she needed. And she stopped me and she went and made a cheese sandwich and slapped the bread together and then stuffed bananas in my pocket. I mean, she didn't want me going out without food. Those kind of little actions. And I think one of the hopes of this book is it calls people to do uh, little things with love and also to become better versions of themselves, to be the best they can be. We often think of saints as having different DNA. And in fact, all of us have a saint hidden in us if we let God work the way Mother Teresa let God work in her life. And I just, I have so many fond memories of the way she encountered people and brought out the best in people. And I hope that uh, the book will invite people to combat the loneliness that's out there. The, you know, she said that Calcutta was everywhere if we had eyes to see, and I hope the book opens up people's eyes to the way they can benefit from engaging with the poor, maybe the lonely, maybe uh, people in soup kitchens or mentoring programs. But, but in all those cases, the poor do have a power. Mother Teresa saw that, and, uh, and it really does unleash compassion in the world, and we need it, I think. Jim, much has been made of Mother Teresa's dark night of the soul that went on for a very long period of time where she didn't feel uh, the consolations and the, the, the uh, happy vibes that people normally feel as they're in prayer or when they're about their spiritual life. Did you ever get an indication that she was struggling, uh, wrestling with something beneath the surface? No. It was a shock to us, Raymond, when the word came out that these letters revealed that far from receiving sweet nothings whispered in her ear, she in fact had uh, this darkness and sense of abandonment. We, we saw how mortified her life was and how hard she drove herself, and so we saw the mm -hmm. suffering. I mean, she had five heart attacks, malaria dozens of times. She broke so many bones in her body and her life. So we saw those hardships, but we always thought God was giving her those extra supernatural intimacies. And in fact, she was uh, felt abandoned and forsaken. And so, yeah, it was, a, it was a shock to us and I think a real testimony to how she found God in the darkness. And as she said later in her life, 
she learned how to befriend the darkness. And I think for a lot of people as they age, there is a certain invitation to trust that in the midst of darkness and suffering, that we can accept God's will and love God in the midst of it. Mm-hmm. You, you know that Mother Teresa also had her detractors, the late Christopher Hitchens, uh, notable among them, who once condemned her for what he thought was her failure to go beyond feeding and caring for the poor. Uh, he felt she should be doing more to fix the society causing poverty. Your reaction to that critique, Jim? Well, I spent uh, 5,000 words in a chapter rebutting critics like Hitchens. Uh, Hitchens met her once and walked around Calcutta, and how he could have concluded as he did makes me wonder whether it wasn't more about being a provocateur than it was about trying to find the real Mother Teresa. There have been so many things on the Internet in the 25 years since Mother died that cast dispersions on her character. So the book does mm. do a point-by-point -point rebuttal of Hitchens and others who've been detractors because people feel if they can detract from her reputation, they can somehow dim the light of God and God's love in the world. And, and I hope that this mm. book refutes that. Yeah. Jim, you were in Rome recently during the consistory. You presented uh, To Love and Be Loved to Pope Francis while you were there. Uh, tell us about that experience, and how did the Pope react to the book? Well, the Pope had a big smile on his face, and I showed him some of the photos in it and described it a little. Unfortunately, Raymond, my Spanish started to collapse under me as I got more nervous as I went along. So uh, I think he was trying to understand my Spanish, but he was delighted in the, in the book. And, uh, and then we had the Knights of Columbus come up with their new movie, and some of the missionaries, missionaries of charity surrounded him for a photo. And he just seemed to have a grand old time, even though I think his knee was killing him. So in the midst of the pain, just mm -hmm. like mother, he was uh, loving and being loved. And so, yeah, it was, it was a real honor to hand the book to him because I hope the book informs the understanding of Mother Teresa and is, and, uh, is, is a light to others. Yeah, I want to talk about that documentary in a moment. But uh, I, there's one thing, Jim, that I've always been curious about because I get so many questions about it. Um, I know at the end of Mother's life, uh, the, the, there were exorcisms performed in her bedroom. Um, tell us about that, because I think people misunderstand uh, that when individuals have a certain sanctity, they are the target of the devil even more to the very last moment. Uh, give us a sense of why they brought an exorcist in. Well, she certainly seemed tormented in that hospital bed. I had been in that Calcutta intensive care unit room the month before when she was previously mm -hmm. hospitalized, and she hated being in the hospitals. It was very disorienting. It is for anybody in their late 80s. Yeah. And so uh, I think the priest there wondered whether this could be at work. I treat this subject at length in the book. And, of course, Sister Nirmala, her successor, put out a statement saying, no, she was not possessed by the devil. Of course, the devil did oppose her work, and Mother was very frank about that. She often spoke about the devil attempting to ruin her work. I remember one time saying to me that the devil was, quote, mad angry at what she was doing in Haiti and caring for the poor there. And so Mother was very aware of the spiritual battles. I think this priest said these prayers with the hope that if there was any kind of a demonic uh, interference in her life, that this would rid her of that suffering. But at the end, I don't think it was an exorcism. I don't, and I think CNN initially mm -hmm. loved the story, branded it like that. But the, the sisters and the local archbishop were quick to correct the record. But yeah, I do they think the devil that. opposed her work. 
Mm -hmm. uh, tell me about this documentary, uh, Mother Teresa, No Greater Love. I know the Knights of Columbus uh, are involved in producing it, and it opens in a special engagement in early October. What's been the reaction? That's a must-see for Catholics. Patrick Kelly and the Knights of Columbus have done a real duty to the church, a real service, by uh, going on five continents, filming the sisters in action, retelling mother's life in the most artistic way. David Naglieri, who wrote and, and directed the documentary, did a spectacular job. It's a beautiful compliment to Jan Petrie's documentary done 40 years earlier. And I just hope mm -hmm. that Catholics and others who really want to know the real mother will go and see that film because it is beautifully done. Uh, it shows those sisters working in the poorest parts of the world. Now, 5,100 Missionaries of Charity sisters spread out in 139 countries. And so the, the documentary, I think, shows the gospel in action. It shows Mother Teresa's highly favored daughters and MC fathers and brothers at work in the world. And yeah, I just think it's a great service to the church to remind the world of this wonderful mother and the lessons that she can teach us now after a pandemic that drove social isolation and often left people very alone and feeling abandoned. So I think mm -hmm. we can learn a lot from Mother about how much we need each other. And, uh, and I think yeah. the documentary is a, a great effort uh, to promote that. Jim, before we go, tell us what is the message that you wanted readers to take from To Love and Be Loved? What was the, the, the reason you felt now was the moment to release this? I felt that Mother Teresa had said very clearly that the greatest need of human beings is to love and be loved. In this scientific age with artificial intelligence further dehumanizing us in our relationships, we see healthcare becoming less and less human. All around us we see these movements in a highly technical, uh, technologically driven world and we are looking for humanity and love and caring. That's at the core of our existence. And so I hope the book is an inspiration to individuals mm. to say it's never too late to turn to God and to love one another and to be better versions of themselves, to go out there and, and do a little uh, in the world that'll also help them find purpose in life. Our young people feel so alienated and estranged. Mm. They're looking to give themselves. And I hope introducing these people to Mother Teresa, because if they're under 25, they weren't even born when she died. Them right. finding Mother Teresa, I think, They'll find this warrior of a woman who had grit and determination, who cried, who laughed, and who loved. And I hope that they discover that she has something to tell them and invite them to live because the world needs a mother now. And, and I think that Mother Teresa's message is as fresh today as it was during her lifetime. Yeah, Jim, I loved reading it. I, I had tears Thank in my you. eyes at parts of the book because for those who, for those who didn't, who never met Mother Teresa, uh, she was... She was radiant, but it, it was as if you were the only person on the planet yes. when she was talking to you and with you. And, um, you know, I, I don't know if I've ever said this, Jim, on air. I will now. Uh, before I came to EWTN, I was wrestling about where to go, what I should do next. And um, I interviewed Mother Teresa uh, it, during that process, and I asked her to pray for me. And she sent me a couple of letters where she said she was praying, and she said, don't worry, God is taking you exactly where you're supposed to go. And a few months later, uh, I ended up at EWTN. So she was, wow. uh, uh, you know, a mother, uh, uh, you know, and, and someone who's very 
you know, I feel tied into my life as well. And when you were with her, as I said, when she put those big baseball mitt gloves on your face, Jim, <laughs> there was nothing like it. And uh, Raymond, she, where was that it, story? it was all love. I needed that story for the book. I guess I'm going to have to do an appendix with the paperback. There you go. That's a great story. Stick that in the, in the, in the paperback edition. <laughs> to Love and Be Loved, a personal portrait of Mother Teresa by Jim Tui is available now in bookstores everywhere and online. Jim, thank you for being here. We'll have you back soon. Thank you very much, Raymond. As the Advent and Christmas seasons approach, what better way to prepare than beautiful, sacred music? Tonight, we've got just the thing. The Benedictine monks of Clear Creek Abbey in the Diocese of Tulsa, Oklahoma, recently gathered to record ancient Advent melodies and the Christmas vigil. The monks have teamed up with De Montfort Music, Sophia Music Group, for their inspirational new CD, Rorate Celli, Marian Sounds of Advent by the monks of Clear Creek Abbey. Here to tell us all about it is Father Abbot Philip Anderson. Uh, Father Abbot, uh, tell me about the role that music and chant plays in the life and the liturgical life of the Abbey, the daily lived experience. Well, it's a deep, it's a deep question, of course, and uh, <clears throat> moderns often hear so much popular music that it sort of you know, keeps you from hearing this sort of thing. But once you're in a monastery for a few months and you hear only Gregorian chant, you begin to, uh, it's like your eyes getting used to the dark or getting used to the light, and you begin to understand and, and imbibe this Gregorian chant. It's so beautiful. And then when you hear some classical music, let's say, you begin to understand it. Oh, that makes sense now. I understand this. Uh, it's easier than Gregorian chant. It's kind of like Gregorian chant at the top of the mountain, a very pure little stream. It's not magnificent like Baroque music would but it's uh, very pure, and it, uh, it's sort of the, uh, the Bible, uh, the Psalms are conveyed better to the soul through this music. We have seven divine offices that we pray every day and once at night, and many of these are sung, and so we spend our lives singing. This new CD is called Rorate Celi, uh, and it's Marian Sounds of Advent. Why did you all choose to focus on the penitential season of Advent and that Marian aspect as well? Well, we were looking for a repertory that hadn't been done recently elsewhere. Uh, a group did a CD of Christmas responsories last year, and we thought Christmas would be a good time, though, to get out some of this music. So we chose something that hasn't been recorded or too much before. Yes, Advent's penitential, but not like Lent. There's a certain note of joy in it that's different. We want to, number one, share our devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary. Number two, uh, help to foster Gregorian chant, the most important of the sacred music in the church, and, and also to share some of our monastic life. If a person buys a CD and, and reads the booklet and listens along, well, you, you'll, you'll enter into our life a little bit. And, and you recorded all the music here uh, for Rorate Celi uh, at the Clear Creek Abbey with award-winning yes. producer, engineer uh, Brad Michael. Uh, now, I know you use that state-of-the-art uh, surround sound, Apple's new spatial audio technology. What was it like uh, working with this technology and, and recording? I imagine you had to accommodate uh, the recording device uh, to your daily life and the way you, you do this normally? Well, when we record, because it's not the first time monks record, we usually find the right place in the church. It's not in our usual places in the choir stalls. It's in a special place, the best place in the church. This Brad was great. He's an accomplished musician, 
not just a, a tech guy, but he knows the equipment, but he also could appreciate, you know, the music, the, the, the finesse, the kind of nuances. And so we found the right place in the church. We weren't really aware of the particular type of sound it was going to make on the record. We were just singing as we usually do. He helped us, though, mm -hmm. group together and do the right thing. And so it was a good experience. What is it about Gregorian chant and polyphony, you think, that continues to move and inspire us? And, and, and explain to people the roots of this music. The Gregorian chant is the beginning. It's not all music. It just is kind of the first principle of it, the diatonic scale, do, re, mi, fa, so. It sort of was monks who invented the scale, do, re, mi. It was, uh, that's the whole story about the musical scale and those, and those words, do, re, mi. It all comes from monks. Mm. Wow. Uh, I want to give people a, a little taste, uh, Abbott, of what they'll be hearing. Watch and listen. Gregorian chant is part of our life. Our life it consists of community prayer, prayer in choral prayer. And thus, we get involved in Gregorian chant because Gregorian chant is the medium through which we express our prayer. Beautiful sound and amazing voices uh, for so many uh, who come to, to really some of these people have no musical experience whatsoever when they, they begin. That's from Rorate Celli, the new CD. Uh, Abbott, tell me about the training these novices go through. Because as I said, some of them have no music training at all when they enter. That's true. A, a generation or two ago, young men would enter with a certain knowledge of music, and now it's rare that they have any training. But when you're young, young men can learn fast, and they, and they do. We, we give them training from the beginning. You know, we have a, a kind of academy of sacred music we work with in, in uh, Europe, and they do their homework, and they have chant classes, and uh, they're here for years for formation, so we have time to teach them. And then as they take on responsibilities in the choir, they learn more as cantor or whatever, and there's a whole range of knowledge that comes before you become a choir master, for example. Yeah, well, you can certainly hear it, and the, uh, not only the, the beauty of, of what's being sung, but the devotion and the passion behind it. Abbott Anderson, thank you so much for being with us. Rorate Celli, Marian Sounds of Advent by the Monks of Clear Creek Abbey from De Montfort Music. Sophia Music Group is available now at outlets everywhere and online. Barnes & Noble, iTunes, the EWTN catalog. For more information, you can visit sophiamusicgroup.com. Abbott, thank you. Thank you. That is all the time we have for now, but be sure to catch us next week. Until then, we'll be scouting the world over for all that is seen and unseen. On behalf of the staff and crew of EWTN News, thank you for watching. I'm Raymond Arroyo. Bye now.